electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Yes, he is. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. A roller coaster 24 hours since the Fed's meeting yesterday. Futures plunged last night, then stocks surged at the open, and then the S&P just went negative. Looks like we're back in the green a little bit. The Nasdaq is still on pace for its fifth straight down week, and my next guest warns tech is still not a good buy. He's here to explain exactly what he means by that. Plus, the case for commodities. We look at five tailwinds that could give the group a long-term boost. And Apple, Robinhood, and Caterpillar are all set to report earnings. We have the action, the story, and the trade on all three of them. But first, we begin with today's markets. Dom here with the ever-moving state of play, It's crazy because early morning on Worldwide Exchange today, Kelly, we came in at one point in the overnight session, NASDAQ futures were down 2%. They rallied all the way back to positive. We opened up strong. To give you an idea, the NASDAQ composite at one point today was over 200 points higher. We're now 24 points lower. It may seem like a modest loss, but the swings continue that trend of being pretty wide throughout the course of any intraday session, if you include futures, even more so. The Dow Industrial is up 100 points right there, one-third of 1% gains. 43.54, the last trade for the S&P 500. That's up about one-tenth of 1%. We're off, well off our session highs for all three major indices here, so keep an eye on those. With regard to the trend that's been developing in this very short year so far, it's very young, it has been all about energy. Oil prices on the world benchmark Brent crude gauge are still hovering near seven-year highs right now. They're pulling back a little bit today. However, it has powered that energy sector to a near 18% gain in the S&P. Meanwhile, we're down 9% for the overall S&P, and we're down 14% for consumer discretionary, the worst-performing sector due in large part to Tesla and Amazon's underperformance so far in the first three or so weeks of this year. And if you want to take a look at some place that's a little bit more mixed, that tug-of-war really playing out, check out what's happening with financial technology, fintech companies. Right now, PayPal Holdings... By the way, another performer this year up about 1.5%, Intuit up 2.5%. Meanwhile, Block, the company formerly known as Square and Coinbase Global, both down around 3 to 3.5%, and one big ETF that tracks it is down 2%. So the theme here is all four of these stocks, Kelly, have been severe laggards so far this year, yet they're trying to figure out traders and investors right now where to place their bets. Is tech a buy right now? We'll see what happens. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Tech stocks may already be down more than 10% this year, but my next guest warns stay away because there's more downside to come and more upside ahead with interest rates. The 10-year Treasury yield has been surging over the past month as the Fed turns more hawkish. Joining me now is Charlie Babrinskoy. He's vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. He joins me from the library with the candlestick. That's the vibe I'm getting here today. Charlie, it is great to see you. Which uh, parts of tech in particular, or would you include pretty much everything, including the mega caps? You should sort it by P.E. You should sort it by profitability, but then relationship of price to that profitability. So the reason is that 
a name like Apple is not as badly out of price, um, out of whack as a name of a company that's not going to make any money for the next 10 years. And that's because of discount rates. Uh, if you have a company that's making a reasonable amount of money today, like Apple is, then discount rates don't have as big an effect on it. Whereas if you have a name that's not going to make any money or cash for the next 10 years, all the earnings are going to be 20, 30 years from now, there's a huge um, problem as interest rates go up. So let's take the example of ServiceNow. There are a lot of bright spots in the tech space today, actually. ServiceNow, the cloud company, the workflow data services, they saw billings up 40% year on year. They're best growth since I believe 2018, pre-pandemic. And this was like comping on top of already strong growth. Is it not a sign that some parts of tech are experiencing a secular increase, a sustained increase in demand that should support some of these valuations? Sure. I mean, a lot of these companies are, are growing nicely. As I've said to you before, some of these are very good companies that just not good stocks. And so I haven't done valuation on that name but they're going to be, you know, they're going to be a lot of names that are going to grow, that are going to maybe even go from losses to profitability, but they're not trading at reasonable multiples of that profitability. And and there are exceptions, absolutely, you can come up with some. But broadly speaking, the Nasdaq is still trading at very high numbers. I love Jim Cramer. I think he's one of the best people on TV. But yesterday he did a screen based on names trading at less than 50 times earnings, 50 times earnings. That's not reasonable. That's too high a price. <laughs> Fair enough. But look at some of the highest growth companies over the past decade whose multiples might have started out at 100 and kind of, you know, Netflix did grow into that multiple eventually. That's exactly right. This has been a wonderful time to be a tech investor. Why? Because for those last 10 years, Kelly, we had ridiculously low interest rates. We had the lowest discount rates in the history of the United States as a country. And that sounds like hyperbole. It's actually factually true. We had never had a 10-year Treasury below 1.4% before the last few years. And so now, as we return to more normal interest rates, we're going to have more normal discount rates. And those companies making money in the distant future are going to get brought down to earth. Yeah, and you're talking 3 to 4% on the 10-year, not you know almost 2%, which everyone's all excited about. Let me, and right. we've talked about some of your your picks. For those who haven't heard before, Viacom CBS, Madison Square Garden Entertainment, the holding company for Apache. So those are some places you would recommend investors look. But I want to ask you one more question about rates, if I can, Charlie. One more macro question. As we've seen this response to a hawkish Powell in response to a strong economy and a pretty good employment situation, the twos tens yield curve is flattening. What do you make of it? Yeah, I've, I've almost given up trying to make sense of the bond market, which has accepted negative uh, real yields, um, and it should be going up much higher. I will say that it's become, you have to think of the bond market as more of an insurance policy than even maybe even an asset class, an investable asset class. We have, as you're saying, the curve was starting to look like this, and now it's starting to look like this. Mm. And twos to 10 is flattening out. Um, I think that's mostly a trading phenomenon. I think that's mostly a hedge fund phenomenon. Um, but it is not great for banks, which do better in a steep, um, a steep yield curve. So the two to 10s flattening is not great for some of my value stocks. Yeah, well, the market's about to go negative, at least the, the Dow again here, Charlie. So as the S&P has turned negative and this has been such a tough month, what are your parting words of advice for investors here? Inflation, inflation, inflation. The money supply is up 40% from two years ago. You called Powell uh, hawkish. I just You can't have Powell and hawkish in the same sentence. They are continuing 
to increase the money supply. We are going to have inflation for a lot longer and a lot higher than people think, and you have to invest accordingly. All right. Charlie, great to have you here today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Charlie Babrinskoy with Ariel Investments. On that note, remember that big spike we saw during Chair Powell's press conference yesterday in rates when the 10-year shot up to 185? As of right now, we've come all the way back to where we were before that decision even came out, around 178. Rick Santelli is out at the CME with more on rates, including the results of the seven-year top of this hour. Rick? Yes, and let's start out with the seven-year really quick. I gave it a, a B-plus mainly because it had a bit of a tail, meaning the when-issued market was a bit lower than the actual yield came out, but it wasn't much. All the other metrics were very good, above average. There was one that was outstanding. It's the buffet table metric. Dealers only took 14.5% of the auction, which means investors took the rest. That was the smallest number since Jan of 2018. And like golf, smaller is better. Now let's go to the markets. Kelly is absolutely right. There is not only one maturity that has a yield higher than yesterday's close. That's a two-year note. Threes, fives, sevens, tens, twenties, thirties. They are all higher in price, lower in yield. Look at a two-day of two-year. You can see what I'm talking about. It's definitely giving up ground, but it's holding on better than the other maturities. Look as we move down the curve. Look at a two-day of tens, left side, right side. Now look at a two-day of thirties, how much lower the right side is. That is curve flattening in action, and right now tens to twos hovering about 61 and a half-ish is probably the flattest right now, going all the way back to uh, October of 2020. Uh, and you could see it on the chart there. And why are we so concentrate on flattening yield curve? Because as the Fed tightens, yes, short maturity yields should go up. They're going to be tightening. They have direct control over that part of the curve. But outside of QE, which they're going to stop, they have no control over the rest of it. And steepening is a good thing because flattening or inverting when short rates are higher than long rates, period, that calls for a recession. And knee-jerk reaction of investors, well, you know, you say the R word, we know what happens. And finally, what's going on with Fed Fund futures? Here's a life of the contract chart of December 22 Fed Fund futures, the end of this year. That is the simplest way to look. At 98.80, it's pricing now five in. And by the way, this is going to be the lowest contract close outside of the first few days of 2020 for this contract. Kelly, back to you. It is a topsy-turvy environment right now. Rick, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli. Some surprising collateral damage from the Fed meeting yesterday. Chinese stocks slumping to a nearly 16-month low ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with more and how officials are responding, Eunice. Well, Kelly, you know, the Fed hiking interest rates is just another economic challenge for the Chinese in an already tough uh, year. So uh, the forecast for GDP growth for this year are in the range of 4 to 5 percent, which is already very slow for China. And the policymakers here have been grappling with a whole host of issues, a tremendous slowdown in the property sector, which is, you well know, is a traditional uh, growth driver for China, the continued disruption of their COVID policy, which uh, will weigh on supply chains, manufacturing and consumption. And now they potentially have these U.S. interest rates coming. So uh, what's interesting, of course, is that because of all these challenges to growth, the Chinese have actually been moving in the opposite direction 
of the Fed. The PBOC cut key policy rates just this month, and the authorities have been indicating that they would do more to stimulate the economy. Now, this mismatch is something that the policymakers here have indicated that they are concerned about because they are worried, especially about the the potential for a weaker renminbi and a capital outflow. So, in light of this, we saw the stock markets here um, falling. Uh, dipping into bear territory uh, briefly. And through the official papers, the government has been messaging to the investors here to try to calm nerves, really talking up the fundamentals of the Chinese economy and also uh, calling on local funds to stiffen the backbone, they say, of the market ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday. Even President Xi Jinping has chimed in on this discussion, saying that uh, Central banks in the West should not slam on the brakes when it comes to policy. Kelly? It's fascinating. Uh, China also, Eunice, in the spotlight as to how it, you know, could, I don't want to say intervene, um, but as the crisis in Ukraine plays out, mm. uh, the role that it might play one way or the other here is increasingly under watch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Chinese have been relatively quiet on the whole as to what they would actually do um, if there were to be um, some sort of crisis. But we did hear from the foreign minister. Uh, the foreign ministry said that the foreign minister um, had a phone call with the secretary of state, um, Antony Blinken, and in that phone call made an unusual move by saying that the U.S. shouldn't hype up the crisis, but also had described Russia's security concerns as reasonable and said that they should be addressed. So it's still unclear exactly how far China would back Russia if there were to be uh, some sort of um, crisis or invasion. Um, but at, at the same time, uh, what also is going on in the background here is that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, is supposed to be coming to Beijing in just about a week to attend the opening ceremony mm. of the Beijing Winter Olympics, which is really seen as a showcase uh, for President Xi Jinping. So uh, really seeing the two sides uh, closely aligning themselves even more so um, against the United States. Yeah. Eunice, thank you for all your reporting. We appreciate it. Eunice Yoon up in Beijing for us. And still ahead, commodities outperformed equities last year for only the second time in 11 years. Can they do it again? We'll get the five tailwinds Morgan Stanley says will boost the space for years to come. Plus, Alaska Air slightly higher after reporting a profit for Q4 and the full year. We'll speak exclusively with the CEO about their growth plans and expectations to return to pre-pandemic passenger levels by this summer. And as we head to break, take a quick look at the Dow heat map with Dow leading the Dow today. Intel, the biggest laggard. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Oil is up more than 60% over the past year, but it's not the only commodity seeing nice gains. Aluminum up 56% over the past year and 12% year to date. And my next guest says there are several catalysts that could drive commodities even higher this year. Joining me now is Martin Ratz. He's Morgan Stanley's chief commodity strategist. Martin, it's great to have you here. And in many ways, what's good news for commodity investors is bad news for everyone else who's going to be relying on these inputs, right? Um, yeah, that's true. Um, the factor that binds everything together, is, of course, is inflation. We've seen inflation pick up. That is historically great for commodities. Commodities provide uh, good inflation protection. They've done so uh, once again over the last sort of 12, 18 months. But inflation also drives rates. Uh, and when rates go up, then particularly long duration assets with cash flows far out, some of the popular equity sectors don't do so well when rates go up. Uh, and, and in that sense, um, yeah, rising inflation, driving rates higher, um, favors commodities over equities. Yeah, and I don't think of commodities typically as a great investment over the decades, but certainly they can have periods of strong outperformance. So which commodities in particular do you think are set up for a strong 2022? Um, we think there's a very clean story in oil. Um, oil demand is coming back. We haven't been investing uh, for some time. Um, the oil price has already uh, disconnected from the marginal cost of supply some time ago. That's not what the oil price is about at the moment, the oil price is searching for the level where simply some demand erosion starts to take place because to balance the physical flow of oil over the course of 2022, that is what we need. We need a price that slows down this demand uh, recovery. And that is, a, that is a high price. It's not a price that is easy uh, to estimate. We put it at $100 a barrel. It could be higher, um, but we're still in that part of the uh, oil recovery uh, where oil can go higher. Having said that, though, uh, pretty good fundamentals for aluminium, for nickel, iron ore, um, sugar, for that matter, a bit of a derivative play on oil. Um, but there is also a lot to play for there. So aluminum, nickel, iron ore. What about copper, which you know people seem to be so bullish about because of the energy transition? Yeah, no, the energy transition features is widely across all of these commodities. Um, there, are, there are several commodities where the energy transition um, over the coming years will create um, very significant amount of new demand. Um, uh, copper is one of them. Lithium is another one. Cobalt, nickel. Um, and there are other commodities, particularly the fossil fuels, where already today they are effectively a red flag for the producers of those commodities not to invest. And we're seeing them slow down investment even before the demand rolls over. So the energy transition is sort of broadly supportive across uh, the commodity spectrum uh, for supply-demand tightness. Um, be it through the demand side or uh, the, 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 the supply side, we very much would expect that copper will also be wrapped up in that story. Um, but copper had a great year last year. There is an ebb and flow. Yeah. Uh, there are also some new projects coming on stream. It's not quite our pick for 2022. But over the medium to long term, uh, you're absolutely right to highlight copper as well. And let's talk about carbon credits, which are a new commodity class, had this incredible year last year, seemed to have a lot of structural support. But you actually think there could be some downside. Well, look, um, it, it falls a little bit in the in in, in the story of sort of their 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 structural trends, which on the whole across the commodity complex we would argue are quite positive. But then there are cyclical overlays, and there is the natural ebb and flow of the market. Um, last year, uh, environmental awareness, COP26, put the carbon credits in a tremendous amount uh, of focus. 
Um, having said that, though, um, nothing goes ever in a straight line. We we forecast higher prices for carbon credits sort of two to three to four years out. Uh, but given the uh, enormous run-up uh, that we've just had, we think it's time for uh, somewhat of a setback in, in, in carbon credits. That's All true. right. So sugar, iron ore, aluminum, aluminum, I'll say it the American way, and a few others. Martin, thanks so much for your time today. It's great to have you. My pleasure. Martin Ratz with Morgan Stanley. And still ahead, we'll give you the action, the trade, and the story on three key names ahead of their results. If you're using Robinhood to trade Apple and maybe dabble in some Caterpillar, let's just say this edition of Earnings Exchange is made for you. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. Check out these session lows. The Dow has given up a 605-point gain at the open to go negative by 100 points right now. And Again, we were negative last night on futures. We just keep having these 1,000-point swings in the market, so we're witnessing another this afternoon. The S&P is now down two-thirds of 1%. The Nasdaq on a five-week losing streak is now down one and a quarter percent today. And Again, that's been about a 400-point round trip. Tesla is having the biggest negative impact on the Nasdaq despite its better-than-expected results. The stock is down 17% in January. It's worst month since March 2020. It's down almost 9% now today. You can see the rest of the EV space, Lucid, Rivian, those both down more than 10%. Elon Musk blaming supply chain issues is the main limiting factor, saying on the call he expects Tesla to remain chip limited in 2022. And as a result, they won't release any new models this year. Speaking of chips, those stocks are giving up yesterday's gains after Teradyne's big miss on guidance. Take a look behind me here. It's the second one down, down 28% today on pace for its worst day since 2000 as they hit a delay in new chip production. The SMH, the ETF, is having its worst month since May of 2019. It's down almost 5% back to 256 today. But we'll end with spice maker McCormick. It also had earnings and it's hitting a new 52-week high after beating estimates. Shares being rewarded after the company said higher inflation was partly offset by, you guessed it, Pricing passed along to the consumer. Record sales growth last year as well. MKC up nearly 6% today. And now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden praising Justice Stephen Breyer for his 28 years on the Supreme Court. Breyer making it official that he plans to retire at the end of the court's term, assuming that his replacement is confirmed. Biden says no decision has been made yet, but he intends to announce his choice by the end of February person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my opinion. 
Police say that four people are being questioned after the death of six people found in a Milwaukee duplex last weekend. Investigators say that multiple suspects targeted the six people, but no motive has been released and no charges have been filed at this point. And on the news tonight, policing on trial, the latest on the rare civil rights case of three officers involved in the killing of George Floyd and its implications for police departments across the country. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And a Renaissance masterpiece by Botticelli has sold for $45 million. Now considered one of his seminal works, The Man of Sorrows was long thought to be painted by someone else in Botticelli's workshop. The painting last sold at auction in 1963 for just $26,000. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. The whole auction process taking about seven minutes, I hear. Wow, that's incredible. Beautiful, Rahel. Thank you very much. Coming up, shares of Alaska Air slightly higher after earnings. The CEO joins us live for an exclusive interview on when he expects air travel to return to pre-pandemic levels. We'll talk about 5G and more with the stock up just under 1% back in a moment. Welcome back. Shares of Alaska Air trying to stay positive in an increasingly difficult tape this afternoon. They had an earnings beat and a positive outlook. Omicron did make a dent in January and February bookings, but shares are up 11% for the year, although we're 27% off the 52-week highs. Joining us now for an exclusive interview is Alaska Air CEO Ben Minicucci, along with our very own Phil LeBeau. Welcome to you both. Phil? Thank you, Kelly. Uh, ben, thanks for joining us today from Alaska's headquarters uh, in Seattle. Let's start first off. We talked about the profitability in the fourth quarter and the t- fact that you turned a profit. When you look at the rest of 2022, I know this is going to be a challenging first couple of months, but the rest of this uh, year, when do you expect things to really start to accelerate? Is it March and April? And then what are you expecting for the summer? Yeah, uh, great to be here with you, Phil and Kelly. Uh, What we're seeing is a strengthening of bookings beyond President's Day, Phil, uh, and beyond. So we're looking at, uh, right now our forecast is for us to be profitable in March and profitable in the second, third, and fourth quarter. So bookings are picking up from their lows in early January. And and yes, January and February are going to be hit hard with, with Omicron. Ben, let's talk about the cost impact that you guys are noticing right now. We've talked with a number of your competitors, and almost all of them say the same thing. Costs are going to be an issue in 2022, whether it's wage inflation, fuel prices. How worried are you about inflation overall and what it's going to mean on the cost side of the ledger? You know, we're always worried about costs, Phil, and, uh, of course, labor inflation is one of them. Uh, Where we're looking now at costs, uh, especially in the second half of the year, we're looking uh, at our costs being, uh, you know, flat to slightly up our unit costs. So, uh, you know, overall, it's always a worry, but, you know, we have a low cost mindset. We have a high productivity mindset and, and we hope to contain those costs throughout the end of the year. But, you know, labor costs, fuel costs, always, always a big issue uh, in our industry. Yeah, we've seen some big pilot uh, pay increases, Ben. I'm curious how many of your aircraft are affected by this 5G issue, if there's any airports in particular that are, you know, a challenge. Yeah, Kelly, you know, we made a lot of progress with 5G, um, uh, but unfortunately here in Seattle, we have a lot of fog. We have a lot of fog here today. And one fleet type that we're impacted by is our regional fleet. And we have Embraer's 175. We have 62 of them. Uh, and one airport in particular is one north of uh, Seattle called Payne Field. And we canceled almost 60 flights uh, over the last uh, week or so. 
uh, because of low visibility conditions. So there's still work to do on uh, gathering data from telecom companies and putting them in this FAA model. Uh, so we hope that's going to get better. But right now we are seeing an impact with, with our regional fleet. Ben, I was listening to your earnings call today, and there was a question regarding uh, corporate bookings and your expectation there. And I was struck by one of the statistics that you guys threw out when it comes to your tech corporate customers, that tech corporate travel is down anywhere from 70 to 90 percent. Is that more extreme than what you're noticing with other corporate uh, customers? And is that just something specific to the tech industry? I, it just struck me as being a greater drop off than we're seeing in other industries. Yeah, Phil, a great question. You know, you know, small business, we're seeing, uh, you know, good pickup from small business. And, uh, you know, before Omicron, we had recovered to 50 or 60 percent. Uh, but the bigger companies, uh, the bigger tech companies, uh, because of Omicron and, the, you know, work from home and uh, not returning to office, we're seeing a bigger uh, uh, impact from them. So a little slower there. But uh, our belief is as we get past Omicron, we get past to more uh, a stable environment that uh, we'll see that corporate business travel come back. And uh, so, like I said, right now we're in the 40 or 50 percent range and we hope to be back to the 70 or 80 percent range, hopefully by the end of the year. One last question for me, Ben. When you look at your fleet, you've already committed to converting to an all Boeing fleet. You've placed a big order for 737 Maxes. Uh, as you filter those in, and I know you already have some in your fleet, what are you noticing in terms of greater efficiency? You know, Phil, uh, from a Boeing 737 MAX and an A320, we're seeing upwards of 20% fuel efficiency uh, on the 737 MAX. It's a great airplane. Our pilots love flying it. Our flight attendants and guests uh, notice the, uh, how quiet the airplane is. It's 40% more quiet on, uh, in the interior. And uh, it's been a great airplane for us. We have 13 in the fleet. Uh, we have a firm order for 93, so there's 30 coming for the rest of the year. Uh, we're excited about, uh, about the airplane. It's a big part of our growth strategy. Ben, thank you very much for joining us today. Ben Minicucci, CEO of Alaska Airlines, joining thank us you. on a day where they beat on the top and the bottom line, Kelly. And we've talked with a number of CEOs uh, over the last week, week and a half. We're glad to have Ben on today. Don't miss our interview tomorrow morning. It is a CNBC exclusive. We're going to be talking with Robin Hayes during Squawk on the Street. We'll discuss what JetBlue is seeing as it heads into the rest of 2022. Kelly, back yeah, to you. Many different challenges they're navigating. Phil, thank you so much. We appreciate that. And thanks to Ben Minicucci as well. Still ahead, supply chain snarls, a retail trading slowdown, and new equipment on the way. The key factors to watch and how to trade results from Apple, Robinhood, and Caterpillar. Hood's down 6% today. And as we head to break, take a look at the biggest laggards in the NASDAQ. They include Tesla, Intel, Lamb Research, JD.com, and AMD. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. It's time for an earnings exchange. On today's docket, Apple, Robinhood, and Caterpillar. We'll start with Apple, the largest company in the world that reports tonight. It's been serving as sort of a bellwether for the market lately. The street listening for iPhone sales and services, growth numbers. The stock is still down 10% this month after touching that $3 trillion mark to start the year. Can they beat supply chain concerns and continue some of the upside surprises in tech? Let's bring in Julia Borson for the story here. And Chris Grisanti is Chief Equity Strategist and Senior Portfolio Manager at MAI Capital Management. He has our trades today. Welcome to you both. Julia, Apple is going to be a biggie. 
It's going to be a biggie. And I think you laid it out exactly right, Kelly. The two issues here, and these are conflicting issues, are on the downside, what is the negative implication, the negative impact of those supply chain constraints and the chip shortages? On the other side, other hand of this equation, Kelly, you have the fact that Apple tends to be better at managing those constraints than pretty much anyone else in this space. And there is expected to be significant demand for the new iPhone, also those new Macs. So we're really going to be watching momentum around those device sales. And specifically, since Apple isn't really giving guidance to understand what the trend was over the course of the quarter, I think analysts are going to be very interested to understand whether iPhone demand, did it taper off into the end of the year or did it continue to be strong? Trying to understand if that demand was front-loaded as an indication of what to expect for the first quarter. And then, of course, Kelly, services are an increasingly important piece of Apple's business. So we'll be watching that as well. Maybe some commentary around wearables. I know there's been a lot of talk about maybe some new augmented reality glasses in the works, but then also things like the watch. And then, of course, you know, with the services business, what they see in terms of those trends. Sure. So the, the Ford PE is down to just about 28. Again, the stock is at 159 today. Chris, what do you do with it? Well, uh, and it's nice to be here again, Kelly. I think Julia's exactly right. The, the, the all eyes are on Apple. Uh, we would, like everybody else, love a comforting report, but we're, we're actually nervous about a couple of things. First, uh, and, and again, I point to Julia's uh, stance of how did sales go through the quarter? We're a little afraid that there was a slowdown late in December. We'll, we'll see whether that's true on the commentary on the call, and that could lead to a weak March guide. Uh, the second thing we're a bit nervous about is services growth. Service growth, not surprisingly, grew hugely in the pandemic, uh, well over 20%. Uh, the street expects 19% service growth in this quarter. We're expecting more 16 17%. And I think that might disappoint. The, the, the final thing that gives me pause is Apple's PE ratio, as you just mentioned, is actually one of the most extended ones in the FANG world. The other uh, stocks of you know, Google and Facebook and even Amazon now is down to about an Apple multiple in next year's earnings. So, so we're a little bit afraid that Apple, which is growing slower than those companies, may be a little vulnerable. So that's what we're seeing. And coming. you make an interesting point about the guidance, Chris, because in the Microsoft call, the earnings, the stock was initially down. The cloud growth slowed to more than 50 percent. But then in the call, they said, well, we think it's gonna, it will accelerate this quarter. But Apple, aren't they traditionally more conservative in their guidance? I, I think that's true. And, and also, uh, Microsoft doesn't have supply chain issues. Apple does, as Julia, as Julia pointed out. So all eyes are going to be on, hey, could you get enough parts? And there's obviously lots of parts for an iPhone. And, and so were they able to conquer that? And they've done an enviable job of doing that in the past. We'll see how well they do it in this quarter. Yeah, chips a constraint on Tesla. Teradyne, which is one of Apple's customers, down big today as well. Uh, we appreciate it, Julia. All the reporting we'll see in a little bit. Julia Borston on Apple. Meantime, Robinhood set to report for just the third time as a public company. The shares are down nearly 70% just since their last release, and they're 85% below their 52-week high. They've got regulatory concerns, market volatility, waning meme stock mania. So what can turn the stock around? Kate Rooney has the story on Hood, which is having another tough session, Kate. That's right. Stocks below $12 today, Kelly. Analysts are really keeping an eye out for any sign that the company is diversifying away from being just a pure play stock brokerage. They want to see signs of growth in areas like crypto. They've rolled out wallets recently. Any progress on that side of the business and sort of the future for Robinhood? What does this company look like five, 10 years down the road? The bull case has been that this company could be really a full suite of financial services 
for millennials and Gen Z, that is sort of the story they told around the IPO. They're going to have to start showing it in the quarters coming up. And some of the KPIs, you got account numbers, that's big. How many clients did Robinhood bring in? Accounts did actually edge down from the third quarter or in the third quarter from the prior quarter. So that's been sort of on a downtrend. Analysts are looking for any uptick there. Transaction-based revenue is still really their bread and butter. That's how they make most of their money. And then um, guidance. I mean, they guided lower for revenue on the quarter. They're expecting a loss in this current quarter. And the comp and uh, comparison for this time last year, this week really is that viral GameStop week. That was driving a lot of the growth ahead of the IPO. They haven't had many viral events or meme stocks uh, attracting people to the platform or things like Dogecoin and those sort of cryptocurrencies. They've been hesitant to add new cryptocurrencies. The bar is pretty low here. Like we talked about, stock has been really hammered in the past uh, six months or so. So a lot of negativity. That could really set it up for a bounce. So uh, any good news would be welcome here for Robinhood investors. Is all the bad news in the stock already, Chris? You know, Honestly, Kelly, I don't know, uh, but I suspect not, frankly. Um, I, I think that uh, Robin is really a poster boy for the age, and the age may be ending. Um, it, it, is it the house that memes built? And we'll, we'll see. What <laughs> I would be watching for in the earnings is uh, revenue growth, which disappointed in the third quarter. They need to squeak out at least some revenue growth. They actually uh, Revenue actually fell in the third quarter. All of this trading, now most of it occurring now in January in the new quarter, but they can comment on that. So we ought to be seeing some growth as the trading volumes go up. If we don't, that's a real bad sign because they're really caught between a rock and a hard place. If they don't have some revenue growth, they can't spend on all these new products that they need to get out. So um, tough place to be. I sure wouldn't buy in front of the number. Would they, Kate, I mean, we just saw UBS buy Wealthfront for about a billion and a half. Now, Robinhood's a lot bigger. It's still got a $10 billion market cap, but could an acquisition bail them out? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been the rumor lately that uh, if if the pain continues for Robinhood, that they could be an M&A target. Uh, they're slightly bigger. I mean, the, the robo advisors, Wealthfront, for example, had never grown to even a billion dollars in private markets, which really is now seeming like the norm in Silicon Valley. Wealthfront, um, you know, hadn't seen the type of user growth and engagement that a name like Robinhood did, although it used to be that Robinhood was in more of a position to do M&A. Right. They haven't grown revenue. They um, you know, haven't done much of that. So I think they're going to have to to prove that they can sort of stand alone here. Too soon to tell, I think, uh, on M&A, but that has definitely been the rumor out there and sort of the buzz around the company. If the stock keeps going down, do they become a target? Yeah, they're sort of in that mushy middle, aren't they? You know, not small enough maybe to be that palatable, but uh, obviously not the size they once were. We'll leave it there and see what happens. Kate, thank you very much, Kate Rooney. And we'll move along to Caterpillar. Reporting tomorrow, historically used to gauge economic growth here, even in China. Shares outperforming the broader market this year. It's been one place to go if you want a nice 4% gain since January. Down today, though, the street keeping an eye out for equipment announcements. Seema Modi has the story on CAT for us. Seema? Kelly, the closure of 2021 should have put an end to some of the worries that investors had around industrials, but supply chain issues, as General Electric revealed earlier this week, uh, clearly haven't gone away. CEO Larry Culp telling me they're redesigning parts, doing all they can on that front. 
3M, the focus on that earnings report was on pricing power. So that sort of offset those concerns around supply chain, the infl inflation effect, and allowed shares of 3M to rebound. And I guess the question now is where does Caterpillar fill, fit into all of this? It is the largest of the three industrials. Shares have outperformed its competitors this year. A number of upgrades from Citi to JP Morgan. And it's coming off a strong third quarter update where revenue grew 25% year over year, fueled by construction, mining. Now, lower interest rates have played a significant role in the construction boom that we've seen across America, Kelly. Does a more aggressive Fed, does that slow that down? A question that will likely come up on the earnings call. The other thing to take into account is oil. The massive rise we've seen in oil prices over the past year, that has helped Caterpillar's energy and oil equipment um, business really outperform. What is the outlook there? It could provide a, some broader guidance for energy investors. Great point. Kind of a different way to play energy if you're scared of the, the uh, energy stocks themselves. Chris, what would you do with CAT? Well, I'd wait to see the number. But what we suspect is that there will be some supply chain issues with CAT. Kelly, I love talking about these stocks that uh, you know make real stuff. We don't have to talk about tech, tech for a change. <laughs> you know, we're talking construction and mining uh, and energy. Um, and my bet is there's supply chain issues. But if there's weakness, I would buy on the weakness because these uh, cycles that SEMA talks about, they don't last for a quarter or two. They last for several years. And, and so we're just, to me, at the beginning of this kind of inflation-fueled uh, energy commodity mining boom and Caterpillar is the way to play that. So if you get any weakness because they can't meet demand, I think that's a real good opportunity and that's the way I'd play it. But there is would there a reason why you wouldn't just buy it here flat out? Yeah, because I'm afraid that they we, we're afraid that they're going to miss earnings. Um, again, we think it's going to be because of supply chain issues. Yeah. Um, whether the market in this current environment uh, takes any excuse for a miss, uh, I'd rather wait and see. And if it's up a couple of percent, you know, th this is, again, a long cycle. You could buy it up a couple of percent. But I'd rather see if you get a chance to buy it on some weakness. All right. 211 is how we're trading into that report tomorrow. Chris, thank you. It's great to have you, Chris Grisanti, with our trades today. Seema, thank you very much as well for reporting on CAT. And coming up, this ETF is on pace for its worst month in six years. With 94% of its components in a bear market, how much lower can it go? That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Christina Partzinebulis. The struggle is real for biotech. The Spider Biotech ETF XBI down more than 20% just this year alone and on pace for its fifth monthly decline in a row. And this would be the longest downward slide on record. Last time we saw such a monthly drop was about six years ago. Under the hood, though, over 90% of its constituents are trading more than 20% off of their 52-week high, bear market territory. Another wildly followed biotech ETF, IBB, plunging 17% this month alone. The biggest laggards, Novavax and Moderna, both down about 40%. And there are no company-specific drivers, but rather just a recalculation of the industry after a surge in early 2021 on COVID vaccine adoption. You've got new strains now, which means figuring out new vaccines, a lot of you know work, costing, uh, costs go up. And then you've got government mandates seen as a boon for manufacturers are now hitting judicial roadblocks. And then lastly, lockdowns are starting to ease across the globe. Investors are realizing the world is trying to move on.
Kelly? Yeah, already a tough year, a tough, uh, tougher one now. Christina, thanks. Up next, it's the device that warned users from pro athletes to the company's own CEO that they had COVID before they even felt sick. We'll talk to Whoop CEO Will Ahmed next. Before we head to break, here's some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Shares of Intel down 6% despite reporting better than expected results, but it's the details the chipmaker narrowly missed on the already lowered expectations for profit margin forecast. CEO Pat Gelsinger told TechCheck earlier, well, Intel's playing the long game. On the foundry business, hey, this is a long play. You know, customers, it takes a couple of years for them to move designs into new foundries. And it's a business model expansion for Intel. And as I said on the call uh, yesterday, hey, we're a bit ahead of the schedule that I set for that, the momentum that we're seeing from the customer and the industry. Welcome back. While well, Omicron cases have peaked here in the Northeast, the U.S. still added more than 80,000 new cases today alone. And as we learn to live with COVID for the long haul, fitness technology is shaping up to be a game changer in early detection. We're going to talk to Will Ahmed about that. He's CEO of Whoop, the human performance and wearables company. Will, your Whoop told you that you had COVID, right? Well, good to see you, Kelly. I think uh, like many people, I was feeling pretty lousy in December. And I was trying to figure out, you know, do I just have a cold or the flu or do I have COVID? And of course, I've been wearing my whoop now for years and, and measuring everything about my baselines. And an advantage to measuring your baselines is you can understand when there's a meaningful deviation and when that deviation may matter. So I had seen really all my data out of whack when I was feeling sick. But what I didn't know is, did I have COVID? And I actually got back-to-back negative tests. So I, I did too. I did too. I got two negative PCR tests while I was symptomatic, and I didn't test positive till day nine. Yeah, and we'll get into why that may have happened. So uh, unfortunately, though, on Whoop, I saw I had this huge resp- respiratory rate spike, and respiratory rate is your number of breaths in a minute, essentially. And because COVID, for the most part, is a lower respiratory tract infection, it causes your breathing to be disrupted. And on WHOOP, that's normally a very stable statistic, even if you have a cold or the flu. But when you get COVID, let me ask you, and only because we have such a limited time here, can Apple Watch do all of these things? And and I should point out this: we've seen the PGA guys using this. We've seen—I mean, wasn't Patrick Mahomes just wearing one too during that incredible game this weekend? So, how proprietary is your technology? Well, fortunately, we have a real focus on health monitoring. We've certainly been out ahead publishing research on respiratory rate. I would encourage people to check that out. But in short, if you see a spike in respiratory rate, we've shown that in 80% of COVID cases, uh, that's present. So it's a meaningful statistic. It's not perfect. You know, this isn't a medical device, but it's really uh, a very key early indicator. And it can encourage people like you or me to keep getting those tests if you otherwise don't know whether you've got COVID. Absolutely. So tell me what you, I mean, you can tell us some of the data about Mahomes while he was playing that game. Well, yeah, Patrick is, uh, is fortunately a great uh, whoop uh, user and, and someone who we're proud of and, and he wears whoop during all of his games. So it was amazing about uh, that, um, that chiefs bills game is Patrick's strain was uh, the highest it's been all season. Wow. So he put a ton of exertion on his body Uh, But when it comes to his heart rate, we actually saw that he had a lower heart rate often when he was on the field Hmm. versus when he was watching 
the end of the game or the other team on the field. <laughs> I totally so understand. There's that. a guy who's got ice in his veins, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and he, feels, he feels calm when he's in control. Yes, exactly. He had a 170 heart rate. I think I get that just walking up a flight of stairs. <laughs> well, thank you so much for bringing us all this data. We hope to see you again soon. Okay, Will, thank you, Kelly. Will Ahmed of Whoop. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.